It's 6 p.m. and you are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, March 31st, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the latest NPR News headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED Public Radio with a story on the challenges facing bars as they reopen in some of the state's bigger counties. Racial Reckoning of Minnesota reports on the trial of Derek Chauvin, including an interview with a nine-year-old witness to the murder of George Floyd. Then we'll bring you a roundup of local news and weather. Felton Pruitt talks to Brian Foss, Nevada County Planning Director, about an upcoming opportunity to learn more about the state law governing the county's land use approval process. We wrap up our newscast with a commentary from Betsy Lombard about the ways political protest can seem almost festive on a spring day on the Broad Street Bridge. For its support of KVMR Community Radio, we thank Nevada City School of the Arts, public charter school serving transitional kindergarten through 8th grade since 1994, accepting applications for the 2021 through 22 year until April 16th. Application and information, ncsota.org. Here are the latest headlines from National Public Radio. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden unveiled details of his sweeping infrastructure and jobs proposal during a speech in Pittsburgh today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the roughly $2 trillion plan is designed in part to help the nation's economy recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Speaking at a labor union in Pittsburgh, President Biden called his massive infrastructure proposal a once-in-a-generation investment in America. I'm proposing a plan for the nation that rewards work not just rewards wealth. It builds a fair economy that gives everybody a chance to succeed and is going to create the strongest, most resilient, innovative economy in the world. Biden's plan calls for spending billions to modernize critical infrastructure and shift to greener energy over the next eight years. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell calls the proposal a Trojan horse that would usher in higher taxes. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Divergent views at the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer charged in the death of George Floyd. Prosecutors are putting forth the witnesses to Floyd's death as everyday people going about their lives when they happen upon the ghastly scene of an officer kneeling on a man's neck. Powerful video was played in court today of Floyd struggling to breathe. It showed many of them in the background. But lawyers for former officer Derek Chauvin described some of those same people as unruly, angry, even threatening. Defense attorney Eric Nelson described for the jury the hostility the officers faced, saying they were distracted and perhaps frightened by those at the scene. Chauvin is charged with murder and manslaughter in Floyd's death. In the wake of cyber attacks against the U.S., President Biden is preparing a wide-ranging executive order designed to strengthen online security. NPR's Greg Myrie explains the administration has been investigating an intrusion that's been widely blamed on Russia. The head of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, previewed the coming presidential moves during remarks to a technology conference. To advance the federal government's ability to prevent and respond to cyber incidents, the administration is working on nearly a dozen actions for an upcoming executive order. 
Mayorkas didn't provide details, but at least some measures are expected to be in response to the breach of thousands of U.S. computer networks. Russia is the main suspect. The DHS secretary also said the cybersecurity arm of his department, known as CISA, is stepping up efforts to address online financial crimes, such as ransomware. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Washington. It's been less expensive to travel during the coronavirus pandemic since so few people, few people have been actually doing it. However, industry experts now say with the rollout of more vaccines and an increasing number of people inoculated against COVID-19, they do expect travel prices to rise. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow down 85 points. The Nasdaq closed up 201 points. This is NPR. A U.K. government-commissioned report has found that country no longer has a system deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. But as NPR's Frank Langford explains from London, critics say they are disappointed with the report. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson commissioned the report in the wake of Black Lives Matter protests here last spring. The report said that racism remains a, quote, real force in the U.K., but that geography, family influence, socioeconomic background, culture, and religion had a more significant impact on life chances than racism. Racial equality campaigners, however, said the report went out of its way to deny that government policies play a role in life outcomes and instead blamed them on the decisions of individuals and families. Rahana Azam, National Secretary for the Trade Union GMB, said it felt like a, quote, deeply cynical report and called it completely irresponsible and immoral. Frank Langford, NPR News. London. Atlanta-based Delta is now the only major U.S. airline still limiting capacity on flights to reduce the spread of the coronavirus, but the airline says it will stop blocking middle aisle seats on its planes in May, reversing a policy the airline put in place last April. At one time, a number of other major carriers, including Southwest Alaska and JetBlue, had similar policies. American Airlines did it for a short time, and United never did. Delta CEO Ed Bastian says nearly 65% of the people who flew on Delta last year expect to have had at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccine by May 1st. Crude oil futures prices fell lower. Oil down a dollar and 39 cents a barrel today, ending the session at 59.16 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. More businesses can open today in Alameda and Santa Cruz counties. The transmission of COVID-19 is low enough to propel both regions into the orange tier of the state's reopening blueprint. KQED health reporter Leslie McClurg explains. Lots of places can increase capacity, like wineries, gyms, and movie theaters. And businesses like bars can now reopen, which owners say is huge. It was probably the hardest year to own a bar and restaurant in the history of American hospitality. Billy Joe Egan is the owner of Eli's Mile High Club in Oakland. But reopening his venue isn't as easy as flipping a switch. Staff have to be vaccinated. And Egan can only reopen at 50% capacity outside. That's not enough to pay the bills. 
I'm a volume place. I'm in the business of getting lots of people in my space at once. Plus, he isn't sure if people will come out in droves. The virus is still out there. The future still feels shaky. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. Bars in Southern California, too, are looking forward to the return of cocktail culture. As KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb reports, bar owners are hoping to finally see some green. Bars have suffered tremendously during the pandemic. They've been shuttered for a year unless they've served full meals, and many others have gone out of business for good. But for those that held on, the easing of restrictions couldn't come soon enough. It would significantly increase our ability to do business. Camila Perry runs two bars in Los Angeles, including the Oaks Tavern in Sherman Oaks. I personally haven't been vaccinated yet. I'm getting vaccinated on Thursday, so it does freak me out to have more people and be working. But, um, it, I mean, it'll be night and day for our business. Still, it won't be business as usual for LA's drinking establishments. It's outdoor patio service only. TVs are allowed, but not live entertainment. And hours will be limited with last call at 10 p.m. L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer called the restrictions, quote, sensible. Meanwhile, bars in Orange County are expected to follow the same rules, but can start opening today. It'll be next Monday for watering holes in L.A. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. In other news, several Democratic state lawmakers are making another push for public banking in California. Los Angeles Assemblyman Miguel Santiago is the lead author of Assembly Bill 1177, which would provide a no-fee, no-penalty bank account to Californians who lack access to traditional banking services. Let's be clear. There is a large population of folks who are currently underbanked. Those who make 15 bucks an hour or less, 80% of those are, are inadequately or unbanked. And we've got to do something about it. So if we want to attack the issue of income inequality. The bill would allow a public banking option board to partner with existing financial institutions to offer the account statewide. The authors say it would especially help those in underserved communities who often have to rely on check cashing services or payday lenders who charge exorbitant fees. The California Bankers Association opposes the bill, saying most financial institutions already reach out to underserved communities to offer low-cost banking options. First Lady Dr. Jill Biden will be visiting the Central Valley today to meet with farm workers and also pay tribute to Cesar Chavez. She's set to tour a vaccination site set up to target farm workers in Delano at the 40 Acres, the first home of the United Farm Workers of America. It was also the site where Chavez fasted in support of the treatment of farm workers in the 1960s and 70s. Dr. Biden is expected to be joined by Governor Newsom and first partner Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. 
Governor Newsom says the state will be hiring nearly 1,400 additional firefighters as concerns grow about another potentially devastating fire season. The governor is using his emergency authority to spend nearly $81 million for additional forces. Most of the new firefighters will be seasonal through the end of June and will help some of the most understaffed Cal Fire crews. California saw an unusually dry winter after a record-setting wildfire season in 2020 when more than 4% of the state's land burned, killing 33 people and destroying more than 10,000 buildings. While the pandemic has made it hard for some Californians to pay their utility bills, for much of the last year, the state has suspended disconnections, but that moratorium is scheduled to end in June. Right now, there's a debate over how to cover the shortfall by customers who've racked up utility debt. One option is to cover them. Money to do that could come from the government, from utility shareholders, or by having ratepayers who can pay bear the cost for those who can't. Melissa Kasnitz is legal director at the Center for Accessible Technology based in Berkeley. The utilities are very actively engaged in exploring options that would be paid for by ratepayers, by the customers who aren't in debt, by adding more to our bills to provide support for the customers whose debt has been accumulated but they are extremely reluctant to consider any alternatives that would be funded by their shareholders. This applies to all of California's investor-owned utilities, including Southern California Edison, SoCal Gas, San Diego Gas and Electric, and PG&E. In PG&E's case, shareholders aren't just investors, though. The utility's recent bankruptcy left PG&E's fire victims holding almost one quarter of the company's stock through a trust. No one is talking about putting all of the burden on shareholders, but I don't think the fact that fire victims are among PG&E shareholders should be a basis to relieve shareholders of any responsibility at all. But it is an unfortunate dynamic. In a filing with regulators yesterday, PG&E said it's assisted 3,000 customers during the pandemic, although that's about half the number of families they helped a year earlier. In a recent press release, PG&E also said it plans to contribute $1.25 million to nonprofits assisting vulnerable people coping with impacts from the pandemic. And that is the California Report for this Wednesday, March 31st. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. This is Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice. Here's Georgia Fort with today's update. A nine-year-old who witnessed the death of George Floyd testified in court Tuesday against Derek Chauvin. In an exclusive interview with the Racial Reckoning Project, the girl, whose name is Judea, said she had to be brave in court like she was brave the day she saw George Floyd die. I met George Floyd's daughter today. You did? What was that like? She looked pretty nice. Her mom was crying. She kept saying, thank you. Thank you. What did that feel like for you? Pretty grateful. During Judea's testimony, the judge decided not to transmit video of her or any of the other three underage witnesses who took the stand Tuesday. Having been there on this day and seeing the the officer on top of George Floyd, how did you feel about that? How did it affect you? I was sad and kind of mad. And and tell us, why were you sad and mad? Because it felt like he was stopping his breathing and it is kind of like hurting him. 
Judea's cousin, Darnella Frazier, also testified in court. Frazier was 17 when she filmed the now viral video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. But it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. While Frazier did not know Floyd, she says it could have been her father or her brother under Chauvin's knee. For the Racial Reckoning Project, I'm Georgia Fort. Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice is produced and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with KMLJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center. Online at racialreckoningmn.org. As the weather heats up, cooped-up recreation lovers will no doubt be looking to regional rivers for outdoor enjoyment. But as we learn every year around this time, rivers can be deadly if swimmers ignore such precautions as wearing life jackets, swimming only in designated areas, not entering frigid water, and supervising children. California State Parks today announced a new series of virtual programs to help prevent drownings on the state's waterways. The first AquaSmart Live Lifeguard program, focusing on river safety, can be viewed at 2 p.m. Thursday at the California State Parks Facebook page. Participants will be able to travel virtually to South Yuba River State Park, Auburn State Recreation Area, Folsom Lake, and Marshall Gold Discovery State Historic Park. Have you ever had the urge to wrap up a bus? Nevada County Transit Services is looking for artists who want to design what it is calling a bold and distinctive look for a vinyl wrap using one of the transit buses as a canvas. This call for artists to help rebrand the look of local transit services is being launched on the eve of California Arts, Culture, and Creativity Month, which starts Thursday. The initial conference call for applicants to get more information will take place at 11 a.m. Thursday. Instructions for joining the call can be found at nevadacountyarts.org. The deadline to submit artwork is April 30th. Other details can be found at mynevadacounty.com slash busart. Speaking of transport, nearly all the miles Californians travel in ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft will be in zero-emission vehicles by the year 2030, according to a draft rule released Tuesday by the California Air Resources Board. The Clean Miles Standard, which is scheduled to be voted on by the board on May 20th, is the nation's first requirement to electrify ride-hailing services. Beginning in 2023, the standard would gradually increase the requirement for zero-pollution miles traveled annually by ride-hailing fleets. In the regional weather forecast, above-normal temperatures will continue into Thursday and Friday across northern California. The warmest day will likely be Thursday, with valley highs peaking in the upper 80s. Temperatures are expected to be closer to normal over the weekend, with a slight chance of showers and mountain snow early next week. For Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear tonight with light winds and a low of 54 degrees. Sunny Thursday with highs in the mid-70s and a low of 53. In Truckee this evening, clear with light winds and a low of 27 degrees. Mainly sunny Thursday in Truckee with a high of 63 degrees and a low of 31. In Sacramento, 
Clear tonight with light winds and an overnight low of 46 degrees. Mostly sunny in Sacramento Thursday with a high of 86 degrees and a low of 48. The California Environmental Quality Act is a complicated but crucial law that counties use to approve land use projects. Felton Pruitt talks to Nevada County's Brian Foss about an opportunity Thursday evening for the public to learn more about the law known as CEQA. We're talking with Brian Foss. He's the planning director for Nevada County. And we're going to talk about the California Environmental Quality Act, which has been around for a while. You guys are going to have an online community meeting coming up on Thursday, April 1st from 6.30 to 8 p.m. So uh, let's get into this. Brian, why don't you first explain to us what the California Environmental Quality Act is? Sure. Thanks for having me. The California Environmental Quality Act is a statewide policy act that was adopted in 1972. So it's almost 50 years old now. And it is a mandate that local and state agencies analyze potential impacts to the environment as a result of development projects. And it's a process that involves public input, public hearings, and then specific areas that need to be studied for potential impacts to different aspects of the environment from water quality to air quality to traffic and those types of things. And so we're it can be a complicated uh, process, and there's a number of steps involved, and so we are putting together an online community meeting to help educate and inform the public of, of the process and those steps that all projects go through. So this would refer to things like a new housing project or a new mall that might be going up, or perhaps even the uh, Idaho-Maryland mine project, which is in development, or something like that. Is that correct? That's correct. All, all those types of things. There's different levels and processes and tiers of CEQA, so smaller projects. Uh, a house addition or just a new house might be an exempt from CEQA. Uh, a medium-type project, like a, a small subdivision in the three or four lots, might just require a mitigated negative declaration. And then larger projects, which it would include shopping centers or the mine or other types of projects, would require an environmental impact report, an EIR. And so each one of those has a different permitting and processing path, and and it can be complicated and it can be lengthy. And so the intent of the online community meeting is to provide an overview of the CEQA process, a little bit of the background of CEQA, and the different types of things that are analyzed as part of the CEQA process. And probably most importantly, how the public can be informed and engaged in in the decision-making process and in the review process of any type of proposed project because there are a number of points along the path um, that a project takes through environmental review that uh, are open for public input, public comment. And so we want to give an overview of that process so people can be aware of how they can effectively be informed and um, be part of the decision-making process. Are there a lot of rule changes from year to year in the California Environmental Quality Act? There, some years more than others. Um, The, as I mentioned, the 
The policy's been around for almost 50 years, and there's been a large number of lawsuits uh, over the years up and down the state that can influence and, and make changes to the CEQA process. But for the most part, it is uh, a standardized process that has certain statutes and requirements and public review periods, and those don't change dramatically from year to year. We've got a forum coming up, an online forum for the public, and that's coming up on Thursday, April 1st. How can people become part of this? We have the information up on the county website under MyNevadaCounty.com under the planning department, and there is a link to join the Zoom meeting. There's also a QR code uh, that one can scan with their phone, and that will immediately link you to the meeting. Uh, we, As you mentioned, it will be on April 1st from 6.30 to 8 p.m. We anticipate that it will be about a half-hour presentation and then time for questions and answers um, from interested members of the public to get more specific related uh, questions to the process. This is not intended to focus on any specific project, but just the general overall CEQA process. And we will be recording the webinar and putting it a link to it on our website indefinitely so that it can be continued to be viewed and the information can continue to be utilized by someone who may want to revisit it or someone who maybe wasn't available at that time. Can the public pre-submit questions to you guys? At this time, we are anticipating that we will be accepting questions when the meeting starts, and we'll have a facilitator that will organize and keep track of those questions. So at this point, we're asking everyone to Think of questions, prepare your questions, and then be prepared to submit them when the meeting starts at 6.30, and there'll be an online um, kind of chat function to be utilized through the, the Zoom platform to submit the questions. The information I was looking at, I have another one. It says mynevadacounty.com forward slash CEQA, C-E-Q-A. So is that a good place mm-hmm. to go? Yes, that is. Thank okay. you for that clarification. Okay, very good. Well, this is all uh, coming up in uh, a week or so. We've got Thursday, April 1st, 6.30 to 8 p.m. It's the California Environmental Quality Act, known as CEQA, and there'll be a countywide forum. Uh, Anything else you want people to know? Just that uh, we want to inform the public of the process. Uh, Like I said, it is lengthy, and sometimes it can be confusing. And so the purpose is to get people informed, and so they can be effective in their participation in the, uh, the decision-making process for projects that, uh, that they're interested in and affect our county. All right. Well, thanks for sharing all the information. We've been talking with Brian Foss. He's the planning director for Nevada County. Uh, I guess we'll uh, be hooking up with everybody on April 1st. Great. Thank you very much. Nevada County has a colorful history of street protest. We end our newscast today with a commentary from Betsy Lombard, who captures the pageant of sights and sounds of a recent gathering on the Broad Street Bridge. On a perfect spring day in Nevada City, my friend's brilliant blue eyes sparkled and shone as we stood on the Broad Street Bridge and talked about justice for Sage Crawford, the need for fundamental change in firearms and incarceration practices, and her current studies in public health. She wore a bright turquoise mask with the red butterfly pattern that accentuated her gorgeous eyes. 
The word liberation was embroidered in turquoise on her baseball hat. Lots of women my age, 60s and 70s, wore comfortable, light, baggy jeans paired with loose, springy floral tops. People were feeling good. The sun warmed my back, and the freeway roared and spat underneath the bridge. There was at least one Asian woman, several black people, and one Latino that I saw, the union photographer. People who drove by were positive and friendly, with waves, peace signs, and thumbs up. This demonstration was about end AAPI hate, that is, end Asian American Pacific Islander hate, following yet another senseless multiple murder in Georgia. About 50 to 60 people were in attendance. In contrast to what I had experienced at demonstrations leading up to last year's presidential election, I observed only neutral or positive responses from the people driving by. One of the ex-mayors of Nevada City came by with his sweet black one-eyed dog who went over to sniff and kiss two little boys who sat on the ground to my left. A white and golden labradoodle made eye contact with me from across the street, her high intelligence showing as she appeared to be understanding and reveling in the moment. I had ridden my bike into town, so I wore teal capris and a white X-back top, paired with a chartreuse helmet. Another friend wore her signature pom-pom stocking cap, hand-knitted by her, tortoiseshell sunglasses, and gray suede boots with jeans. This beautiful person was in attendance at almost every demonstration since the election of one orange ex-president. A lovely young woman near me sported clip-on vintage shell earrings, their soft rectangle shape trimmed in metal and shining against her dark brown hair. She confessed her love of jewelry, showing me her heavy gold anklet decorated with hieroglyphics. Every so often, she pulled her mask down to puff on her vaporizer. Another protester paired a red t-shirt with white linen pants, the t-shirt's white letters saying, F. Racism. It was all in all one of the most fashionable and congenial demonstrations I have ever been to, in spite of the multiple tragic reasons we were out there. That's our newscast. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs at 6 p.m. every Monday through Friday. Make your voice heard. If you have an opinion you dare to share, we invite you to submit a commentary to news at kvmr.org. Commentary guidelines can be found under the news section of our website. Coming up next at 6.30, an all-new edition of The Sages Among Us, host Suzanne Webb is scheduled to interview Katherine Greenwood of the American Association of University Women. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. ¶¶